Get Back to Basics with Judaism 101 with Rabbi Michael Katz. Hi, and a very good afternoon to you. It's wonderful to be in your company this afternoon. It is Wednesday. It is the middle of the week, and it has just gone 2 11, 11 minutes past 2, and that means it's time for another. Get Back to Basics with Judaism 101 with Rabbi Michael Katz. Well, I hope you can hear me now. I hope it's coming through loud and clear. Um, There is absolutely no way that I could know that because I can't listen to the radio at the same time as I'm talking. And of course, we are coming to you remotely. And uh, therefore, talking to you as I am from my own studio here in my own office, it is a little bit uh, less than perfect. Uh, Last week, we were suffering with load shedding. Thank God that's not happening now. But uh, hopefully we're all connected and hopefully you can hear and we can have our Wednesday afternoon chat about things that are important in Jewish life um, on this episode of Judaism 101.9. And today I'd like to share some thoughts with you, which we don't always perhaps forefront think about when it comes to the months of Adar. And that is the very important and special individual who is linked intrinsically with this month. In fact, if we take a careful look at this whole story of Purim, why it was that Haman was so excited about um, having picked the lots and made sure that it would be in the month of Adar that the Jewish people would actually be exterminated. God forbid that he would be able to get rid of them. He was excited about it because he saw that it fell on this individual's yard site. And he said, ah, it's already a sad time for them. They lost one of their great leaders or their greatest leader at this time. And therefore, it makes perfect sense that God has certainly designated that this should be eternally a sad month. It's one of the reasons we have such a big turnaround in this month. And we say, that we're supposed to be so happy at this time. We're supposed to increase in joy. What he didn't know. Uh, what he didn't take into account was that, A, we don't look at a yard site as an end or uh, something that is so totally negative, and certainly when it didn't, when it applied to this individual, but it just so happened that this person, this individual, happened to have been born in Adar as well. In fact, his birth date and the day of his passing, exactly 120 years apart, he was born in 1393 of uh, before the common era and he passed away in 1273 before the common era in other words 120 years exactly to the day and of course we're speaking about moses we're speaking about moshe rabbeinu moshe rabbeinu whose life and times and things that he stood for and things that are perhaps well known about him and some that are not uh, really really speak to us in volumes during this month of Adar. It is intrinsically the month of Moshe Rabbeinu. Zayin Adar, the seventh of Adar, which was yesterday, is in fact um, the day of his birth, although there is some discussion as to whether he could possibly have been born in a leap year. And if it was a leap year, was it in the first or the second month? And it seems to be that the majority of opinions are that he was born in a leap year, and uh, died in a leap year, and that the leap year would have been that he was born in Adar 1 and that he passed away in Adar 2. You're going to argue that the calendar wasn't officially set up at that stage and so on. So um, perhaps we'll leave it at the fact that whether it is Adar 1 or 2, the first or the second month, that the 7th of Adar in both of those months are uniquely linked 
with this great, great leader of the Jewish people, Moshe Rabbeinu Moses. Now, perhaps we may have some interesting questions about him. I'd like to discuss a few details about Moshe Rabbeinu, perhaps some that are well-known, perhaps some that are not so well-known. Number one, the uh, amazing thing about Moshe Rabbeinu was that we see that his name was perhaps not even a Hebrew name. You know, we go out of our way to tell people when you're giving a child a bris, when you're naming a child um, at, the, the, at the Torah, you must make sure that you give them a Hebrew name. He's called Moshe. And it seems to be that he's named by an Egyptian princess, and she calls him, therefore, by perhaps an Egyptian name, and that this name Moshe originally was not Egyptian at all. So what's the story behind that? Number two, when Moshe's mother hides him, she picks, I think you've got to agree, the most peculiar place to hide him. If you wanted to conceal the birth of a child, if you wanted to hide a child away, surely you would not pick to hide the child near water. The most dangerous place on earth. I mean, I just think about the banks of the Nile. You think about the fact that the water would rise, it could carry him away. God forbid the uh, little uh, uh, crib that she made for him and covered in pitch, it could turn over, the child could drown. God forbid there could be predators out there, uh, crocodiles, I don't know, hippo, hippos and whatever um, on the banks of the Nile in those days. And of course, this was extremely, extremely dangerous. Why did she pick that peculiar place? Well, for this and more excitement about the meanings behind the life and times of Moshe, Moshe Rabbeinu Moses, you're going to need to stay tuned to this very episode of Judaism 101.9. Get back to basics with Judaism 101 with Rabbi Michael Katz. Yes, and we're back and we're talking about Moshe Rabbeinu Moses and perhaps we could add in a third little question, and that is why when most rabbis are known as rabbi whatever and the name, here Moshe is always known as Moshe Rabbeinu, not Rabbeinu Moshe. And is there a difference? And what does it actually mean? So let's first begin by thinking about the time of Moshe's birth and this amazing story that Moshe is placed in a basket in the reeds. In the by the Red Sea at the Yamsuf, the Reed River in the reeds seems to be that he was placed on the banks, not actually inside the water. But nevertheless, his mother went out of her way to make him a basket that was covered in pitch and that would certainly float and in which he would be safe. And it was Batya or Bitya, who was the daughter of Pharaoh, who goes down to bathe there and she finds him floating there. And that's the story with his name, which we'll come to next. But let's think about the fact that a woman, a mother, who cared so much about her darling child, who clearly knew that there was something really, really unique and special about this boy, because it comments so in the Torah, that she looked at him and she said, Kitovu, she saw that he was so good. She saw something brilliant about him. Why would she have risked everything and risked his life by placing him in a basket in the river, in the water, and Dafke at the Nile? Well, if we think about it and we go into the Midrash and uh, all the uh, various background stories to what actually happened with Moshe Rabbeinu, it's quite fascinating to see that, in fact, the uh, astrologers of Egypt went to Pharaoh and they predicted the birth of this young man. They said a Messiah is going to be born, a Mashiach, a person who is going to 
take the Jewish people out of Egypt and he's going to take away so much of your wealth and your throne and your country and so on. And we need to make real, real inroads in trying to prevent him from doing this. And the way that we suggest it is he hasn't yet been born, we can see in the stars, but he will be born. And when he is born, he is going to accomplish all of this unless we put a stop to it. And we can also see in the astrological uh, constellations, we can see that he is going to have one weakness. There is going to be one downfall for Moshe or for this Mashiach, for this Messiah. And that downfall is going to be with water. Water is going to cost him actually his life and his future. And this is what they predicted. And they told this to Moshe Rabbeinu. They told, told this to Pharaoh. I keep on mixing up the names. I do apologize. They told this to Pharaoh, to Paroi. They said to him, this is what is going to happen. Paroi, Pharaoh says, well, what do we have to do? So they said, well, the best then is to take um, all the boys and put them into the Nile, drown them. And if we drown them in this way, we'll be able to fulfill both predictions at once. We'll be able to get rid of him through water. It's water that is going to take away his life. And we we will make that prediction come, come true. And at the same time, we'll be able to thwart, to undo the advances of this Messiah of this Redeemer who's going to take the Jewish people out of Egypt and overthrow your country, your government, your wealth, and everything else with it. So they started their campaign of throwing the boys into the river. Now, interesting to note that according to our sages, they threw all the boys into the river. The decree was against Egyptian and Jew. Why? Because the next question that Pharaoh had for them was, will this Messiah, will this Redeemer be Jewish or Egyptian, and they couldn't really see that because remember, Moshe Rabbeinu Moses actually grew up, born Jewish, he grew up in the Egyptian palace, he became the proverbial prince of Egypt, um, certainly for a while, and um, therefore it wasn't that predictable when they gazed in the stars, and so therefore the decree actually was against all boys, all boys, not girls, boys, because that was what they saw, a male figure would be born and he would take the Jewish people out of Egypt and he would overthrow Egypt and he would do all of these dastardly terrible things to the Egyptian monarchy and so on and they were afraid of it and this was the way that they were going to overcome it. Well, Moshe's great mother, Yochevet, was uh, really, really in tune and very, very connected. And when Moshe was born and she saw and she realized just how great he was and she realized, in fact, that she had just been given birth to this great redeemer, she knew that what she had to do was to conceal his birth. Now, she couldn't allow him, of course, to be thrown into the river, but she had to work out a way whereby she could place him in the river without him being drowned in order to confuse these stargazers, in order to get them to take a look at their astrological signs and see that the baby has been born and that he's been placed in the river. Now, you can imagine. I would imagine that they came running to Pharaoh and they said, we can see in the stars he's been born. He's been born. He's been born. <laughs> he's around. This child is there. And in fact, it seems that she managed to conceal him at home for a couple of months and then only then did she put him in this basket that she manufactured. And it was a kind of a little submarine. She wanted to make sure that he would be below water surface. She knew that if that would happen, he would, um, it would confuse the stars. And so she placed him by the river, the idea being that he would go into the water and that the stargazers, the astrologers of Egypt, would rush, as they probably did, to Pharaoh and said, he, we've got him. He's in the water. 
and therefore we can call off this whole campaign of having to destroy all the boys, whether they were Jewish or not Jewish, uh, from that moment on. So in a way, um, Moshe Rabbeinu, from his very, very earliest age, right from the beginning, already became a savior, a salvation to all boys, to all people, in fact, whether they were Jewish or they were not Jewish, because he stopped the killing. He stopped the dying just by the fact that he was born, Yochevet, by the fact that she placed him as she did in the river. And this very, very clever plan came to undo whatever the stargazers, whatever these astrologers had seen in the stars. So an amazing hiding place after all, and something that was very, very carefully worked out. This was no accident. It wasn't that she had no better place to hide the baby, and it wasn't that she was being reckless with her child, God forbid, but she actually had to come up with a plan, brilliant as it was, in order to undo the thinking of the astrologers and get them to call off the whole campaign about destroying the boys. Now, what happens next is Bitya, Batya, uh, the daughter of Pharaoh, the princess, comes to bathe at the river. Now, that in itself is strange. Why would a princess be bathing in the river? Were there no uh, swimming pools in the palace? Was there no place for her to bathe um, in the palace? It seems to be a little bit undignified to talk about a princess with her handmaidens coming to bathe in the river. There seems to be something more to it than that. And, of course, our commentators tell us that Batya was converting to Judaism. And she was actually going there to use the mikveh. She was going there for a ritual immersion. That was what she was doing in the first place, going to the river. This was something perhaps off the beaten track, a little bit secret. And here she spots this basket. She opens it up. She sees, first she reaches out, and it says that her arm extended in order to be able to reach the baby. She opened it up, and she saw that this was a Jewish child, and she acknowledges it as such. And it says then in Torah that she named him Moshe, ki min because I have drawn him out of the water. Now, some of our commentators point out that in fact, in fact, the name Moshe was probably given already to Moshe Rabbeinu as his name. And they say that in fact what she wanted to call him was an Egyptian equivalent of the name Moshe, which is Munius. She wanted to call him Munius, but when the mother said that the name is Moshe, it all added up. She, uh, Batya, learning Hebrew, probably already knew that Moshe is Kimina Mai Mishi Tihu, that it's a name that means in Hebrew that it came from. Uh, that he came, uh, that, he, that he was drawn out of the water, and uh, the synchronicity of it all was that she acceded to the fact that his name was Moshe, rather than any of the other names by which Torah says he was named. And this is something else fascinating. We um, delve into the name Moshe because it's mentioned here, but in fact, there are many who tell us that the name Moshe was just one of eleven different options. 11 different names. He had 10 other names that uh, Torah refers to, or that is uh, referred to, uh, referring to Moshe. And the first one is that his name was perhaps Yered, which means descent. According to one opinion, Miriam gave him this name because she said it was because of him that she went down to the Nile to see what would become of him, or that Moshe was called by this name because he brought the Torah down to the Jewish people and the divine presence back down to this physical world, the idea of Yered, descent. Or his name was Avigdor, called the master of the fence, according to the Mamla Ais. He was called this by his grandfather, Kat, 
because since Moshe's birth, God has fenced in Pharaoh, not allowing him to continue his decree to drown Jewish infants that we referred to before. Or they say his name was Hever, companion or connector, either because Moshe connected the Jewish people with their heavenly father, or because he prevented heavenly retribution for their sins. Or he was known as Avi Soho, father of seers. He was given this name um, because Moshe would grow up to be the master of the seers, of the Sochim and the prophets. Alternatively, he has another name, Yekutiel, from the root Kave, meaning hope. His mother Yocheved called him perhaps this name because she had hope and trust that Hashem would return Moshe to her. Or he was known as Avi Zanoach, meaning master of rejection. Aaron, Moshe's brother, we're told, gave him this name, saying, my father rejected my mother but took her back because of this child, or because Moshe would make Israel reject idols. Or his name was Tovia, implying goodness. Now, we mentioned that before, that when his mother looked at him, Ki Tovhu, she said he was good, and perhaps some suggest that was actually his name, Tovia. Or some called him Shemaya. They pre uh, predicted that in these days God would hear Shema, the prayers of Moshe and the Jewish people. Or he was known as Ben Aviatar, the son of pardon. Since Moshe was the Jewish son who would get God's pardon for the Jewish people for the sins of the golden calf. And finally, the name Levi is also suggested as one of his names or a name of Moshe because he belonged to the tribe of Levi. But besides, or despite all of these names, Moshe is known as Moshe. Moshe, the name given to him at the banks of the Nile, it seems, by Batya. And some suggest that it is Egyptian. And some, as we said before, say that it's not. It was actually Hebrew. And in fact, the Egyptian equivalent, Munios, was not the name that stuck. But in fact, Moshe, which is in fact Hebrew. But whichever way you want to look at it, it has, according to Torah, a direct connection with Batya, who became his adoptive mother. Um, and she allowed Yochevet to nurse him, of course, um, in that uh, elaborate plan that was hatched by the clever Miriam. But at some stage, he moved into the palace and became that proverbial prince of Egypt that we referred to before. This was this great Moshe, and that was the name that she gave him. And isn't it interesting that it is the name by which God refers to him and the Torah refers to him. We don't have these other names that we mentioned before. All the names are Victor, Yered, Hever, and so on. We don't call him by those names. Tuvia, Tuvia, we call him Moshe throughout the Torah. It's the only name that he's remembered by. And there is, of course, a very, very significant reason behind all of that. And the reason, of course, is that Moshe wanted to acknowledge the great thing that Batya had done for him. And she said, and he said, rather, he taught us that you have to have what we call hakaratatov. He had tremendous, tremendous hakarasatov, hakaratatov. He wanted to acknowledge this great woman for the fact that she had saved him, saved the Jewish people by so doing, um, and uh, done the most tremendous, tremendous um, thing for him and for the Jewish people. And she want, he wanted that always to be recognized. And so he said, no matter what my parents perhaps called me when I was born, no matter what names I'll be known by, I want you to know me as Moshe, because that was the name that she gave me. And this will always stand as a testament 
it will always bear witness to the fact that this great woman saved my life and saved the Jewish people. We need to show that gratitude. We need to acknowledge this greatness. And the way we'll do it by on a regular basis is calling me Moshe. And so therefore it became known that he was Moshe Rabbeinu, Moshe, our teacher. What is our teacher? Not just Moshe, the great man, but Moshe, the great name. The name is a teacher in and of itself. So it's not just Rabbeinu Moshe. It's not the rabbi or the leader who is known as Moshe, but it's rather that Moshe itself teaches us something. The idea of repaying kindness with kindness of forever recognizing the kindness that people have done for us. And it's all taught through his great and wondrous name, Moshe, Moshe Rabbeinu. Be back with you right after this. Get back to basics with Judaism 101 with Rabbi Michael Katz. One of the other um, things that is notable about Moshe Rabbeinu was the fact that he had a speech impediment. You know, very often today, if you think about a leader, um, people judge leadership, perhaps erroneously, by the fact that a person can speak. Is he a great speaker? We think about uh, presidents and we think about uh, great leaders and the ability to communicate the power of their words, the ability to give great and stirring and moving speeches is very often regarded as the mark of a great leader, great leadership. And even if we think about it in the Jewish community, if you were to put a rabbi to the test, very often, I suppose, the idea would be, let him give a shir, or let's hear his drosha, let's hear how he speaks on a Friday night, and so on. Moshe Rabbeinu had a speech impediment. Now, where did the speech impediment come from? Well, it seems to be that the Midrash tells us that as a young child, when he was growing up in the palace, there were those who were plotting against him and saying, you know, this is going to be the kid who's going to take everything away. And um, he once apparently took the crown of the king and uh, placed it upon his head. And they said, oh, this is a bad omen, bad sign. He's trying to cup your crown. He's trying to take your crown, Pharaoh. Um, and uh, they devised a plan whereby they would test him. They placed in front of him golden jewels and they placed in front of him some hot coals and uh, they said, this will be the test to see which one he is going to pick. And he was about to reach out for the jewels when uh, a malach, an angel, moved his hand and made him pick up the hot coal. It was burning his fingers and he popped it in his mouth and it then burnt his tongue. And the tongue was burnt, his mouth was impeded, and he had this speech defect. And there were certain letters, um, certain uh, enunciations in Hebrew that he couldn't say. And some of them were bound up in what he eventually does say to the Jewish people, the idea of pakoid, yifkoid, certain words that he had to say about how God would remember the Jewish people and tell them. And this was actually how he convinced the Jews when he eventually came back to them that um, it was God who was speaking and not him himself because he said words that they knew that he could not otherwise have pronounced. And some of them were those words of Pakod Yifkod, that God will surely remember, and has surely remembered the Jewish people, and is coming to send me to take you out. Um, but this was all part and parcel of the speech impediment that he actually had. Now, Moshe Rabbeinu was also someone who, as a leader, 
not only had great humility, which the Torah tells us about, but he also recognized his role and his job and the things that he had to do, which went beyond the call of duty. And it is him who we are told that actually on the night that the Jewish people were leaving Egypt, made sure that he fulfilled the job, the the, uh, the promise that had been made <coughs> to the great Yosef, Joseph, the viceroy of Egypt, um, by his family and the Jewish people to go and fetch his bones, to take him out and carry him out of Egypt with them. And it's Moshe Rabbeinu who attends to that job on the night that the Jewish people are leaving Egypt. It just goes to point out the incredible, incredible humility, the incredible diligence and obedience and the incredible application of Jewish leadership that is embodied in this great man, Moshe Rabbeinu. Be back with you to sum up right after this. Get back to basics with Judaism 101 with Rabbi Michael Katz. Now we all know that Moshe was married to Tzipora. Tzipora, who was the daughter of Yisroi, Jethro, who was a uh, great priest um, of uh, other religions and who eventually joins the Jewish people. But together with um, his wife, they had two sons, Gershom and Eliezer, and Yisroi, Jethro, his father-in-law had hired him to be a shepherd for his sheep. There is a fascinating and beautiful story that we're told that one day Moshe noticed that a certain lamb, a sheep, had wandered away from the rest of the flock. And he ran after it and found it resting in a shady spot, drinking from a water system. The rabbis tell us that Moshe Rabbeinu exclaimed, I did not realize that you ran away because you were tired. He gently picked it up. And he returned it to the flock when God saw this act of compassion, great compassion on Moshe's part. He declared, he said, as you have such mercy on the flock of a human being, I guarantee you that you'll become the shepherd of my people. So destined for greatness from the moment that he was born or even before his birth. This great, incredible leader, Moshe Rabbeinu, who we honor and we think about during these days of Adar, it is worth just adding a little bit of simcha, of joy, to our lives in honor of Moshe Rabbeinu. Think about the fact that he was the one who brought the Torah to us from God at Mount Sinai. He was the one who led us out of Egypt. He was the one who was the greatest of our leaders in his humility in his ability to lead and in the care that he gave to us, just like a shepherd to that little lost sheep or a tired sheep on that particular day. And is it not the way that Moshe Rabbeinu as our leader cared for each and every individual, cared for each and every person, no matter who they were and what they may have done right or wrong. Moshe Rabbeinu, this great and wondrous leader whose birthday and your site is on Zion Adar, the seventh day of Adar, and influences our lives in such a special way each and every day. I want to wish you a great rest of the week, a great Shabbat up ahead. Look forward to being back with you again on another exciting episode of Judaism 101.9, same time, same place. Next week, please God, take care.